0: Hosea chapter 11 in your Bibles this morning, starting with verse 1. If you're new to the Bible, uh, turn to the table of contents. You can find the page number for Hosea. Chapter 11. Follow along in your Bibles as I read this chapter. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols, yet it was I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not... Again, destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. There's a story in the Bible that Jesus tells of two sons. The older son stays home to please his father. Sort of the picture of the the Pharisee, the religious one. The younger son takes his inheritance Goes out and has a good time. He wanders, he drifts, he parties until he's left with nothing and he finds himself eating with the pigs and realizes it would be better for me to go back home and be a servant in my dad's house than to remain here just simply eating with the swine. He returns home with the idea that he will be a servant. He's already accepted that as his fate. And what does he find? As he's walking home, he finds that his dad has been waiting for him, has been watching for him, longing for him. And instead of being treated as a servant, he finds his father embrace him as he walks toward the house. His father then kills the biggest calf and throws a party for his son. Because his son, he says, was dead and now he is alive. Now that story is often called the story of the prodigal son. And if you have spent any time here at the garden, you have heard that story before, haven't you? We tell that story a lot. It's a a story that I think deserves to be repeated. I think it needs to be repeated because it is so central to our story of our relationship with God. We love that story because some of us see ourselves in the older son, that religious Pharisee who stays home. Many of us see ourselves in the younger son, That that sense of drifting, we're prone to drift, we're prone to take the Father's goods and squander them and, and find our own pleasures to be more fulfilling. And then what we find is we're eating with the swine and there's nothing left. And so then we turn and we go back home and what we find every time is a Father who's embracing us, throwing a party for our return. It's a story that we see ourselves in. Now, Hosea is rooted in the same story of a prodigal. It starts with that foundation of the marriage. Hosea and his wife is the first analogy that we have. It's the main analogy throughout the book of Hosea. It's the real story of the prophet marrying a woman who was prone to drift. She was prone toward sexual immorality. She was prone toward adultery and toward finding happiness in other dudes instead of just her husband. And so she finds herself over and over going away toward, toward, toward these types of gods. And then there is Hosea the entire time receiving her back, an unchanging love that he has for her. That's the foundation. The whole message then of Hosea is built on that. We have seen... A, Israel, the people of God, who are prone to drift. They're prone to wander away from the fold. They're prone toward, to, to, to worship other gods, to find happiness in other things, to include other gods into their worship of God. And what we're seeing over and over is God's uh, uh, frustration with Israel his indictments of Israel for their various sins, for their love of prosperity more than their love of him, etc. Now what we're seeing here in chapter 11, I'm, I'm giving this all as somewhat of a framework here. Chapter 11 is for us and for Israel the, uh, um, the, the restatement, the recommitment, the reassurance of the love of God for this people. It was a rainy afternoon in Stanley, Idaho, in the Sawtooth Mountains, when my wife and I and our children decided to go on a rafting tour with our friends David and Gwen Carroll. And since they're here with us this morning, I figure I would share this story once again, I've told it before, uh, as a way to pick on them a little bit, but it also makes a point As to where we're going this morning, so we went out on this raft on uh, on these rapids. It was supposed to be sort of this easy rapids; the kids can go along. Um, Ends up about halfway through, we got to pull over, get the kids out of the raft uh, because they're weeping. And so then the rest of us brave on down the river. We hit this certain section. Uh, in, in this river, in the rapids, which is sort of the most difficult section in this sort of tour that we were taking. And our raft turned in a way that it should not have turned. And instead of going through the rapids, we went into the sidewall of the canyon. And before my eyes, Gwen Carroll is sucked out of the raft into the foaming white jaws of the river. All right, And so as I'm seeing her go, I'm seeing the river just eat her alive. I'm not sure if I'll ever see her again. I see her husband, David, who was supposed to be on a kayak. I see him going down the rapids where we were supposed to go, but all I see is like his head bobbling and his helmet um, bobbling through the rapids, uh, not in the kayak. The kayak is behind him. All right, That's not how you're supposed to go through these rapids. To my joy, his body was still connected to his head, and he caught onto some rocks and pulled himself up out of the rapids, and then his lovely wife, Gwen Carroll uh, followed a similar suit and pulled herself out. Now, we still had a problem. We were on sort of this side of the canyon, all right? Remember, big rapids right here. We're on this side of the river. Our tour guide is on the other side of the river. All right, and so we're like scratching our heads, like, no, you need to be over here. We're not moving. We're not going anywhere. I'm not trying to scale this wall. I'm not swimming through this. Um, we're not moving. You need to somehow get any. And, and so here's, here's what happened, all right? Our tour guide, who was a beast, a, 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 a superhero like move, dives into the rapids, all right? Like a migrating fish swimming upstream is fighting against this downward force. The river wants to take him that way and he wants to go that way. And about halfway through as he's fighting it, he actually yells at the river and says, (laughs) he says, come on River! I've never seen swimming like it before or since. Superman couldn't swim better than this beast. And he swims from one side of the river to the other through the rapids. Now, why do I tell that story? Here's how it relates to our message today. We want to be like the tour guide, not like David. David is going with the flow of the, the river, all right? It's caught him in its jaws and it's taking him and, everyth- and our raft and everything else you can imagine wherever the river wants to take it. The tour guide said, no, come on river, I'm going another direction. I'm not drifting wherever the river wants to take me. Now, this is how we typically often find life to be. The world that we live in, the life that we live, is like a river that is forcing us downstream. There are forces all around us that are difficult and that are hard. You may be from a very difficult background, and you know what I'm talking about with this sense of a force, a stream, and it's so hard to fight against the stream and the force of this rapids. Or maybe you are in school or you started at Micah and you realize the the force of a culture that is so far beyond what you believe to be godly. In the city, the force of the city, the force of the the, the, the grit and the problems and the trials at your job. So much of life is is forcing us in this direction and and we we are prone to, to 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 just simply drift because we don't know what else to do. We don't know how to stop ourselves. We try to grab at things. We don't know where our hope is. Unlike David, we didn't we don't find a rock to grab onto. And we we are just going to continue drifting down this thing. As opposed to streaming or to fighting against the stream. Now here is my goal this morning. I'm not speaking to the superhero Christians in the room, who who have figured it out, and you're just like, "Come on, River, I'm, I'm I'm conquering you. You you figured out how to conquer life, how to conquer all the problems, how to conquer the temptations and the sin issues in life." I'm speaking to those of us who are prone to uh, to a drift. We're prone towards just simply going with the streams. going, And we, 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 don't, we fight against it to some degree. But at the end of the day, we're not sure all the time what to do with the drift. And we find ourselves more often than not just simply drifting through life. And the drift is not taking us toward Jesus. The drift is taking us away from Jesus. And what we find in Hebrews is a warning that if we continue to drift, there is no hope for us at the end of the river. Friends, those of us that are drifting this morning, we must stop drifting. But the question is, what is our hope? So here's my goal, I'm going to keep it simple today. My goal is to give you a rock to cling on to. My goal is to not tell you that you are to be the superhero. I'm going to give you the, sort of the end of the story right now. Jesus is the superhero. Amen. Swimming across the river, we are the ones clinging to the rock. I want to give you a rock to cling to. I want to give you hope in the midst of the craziness, the chaos, the rapids of this life. Hope for the drifting soul. My aim, as I speak to those of you who have drifting souls today, is that you will take hope in the fatherly, merciful, and unchanging love of God. Let's get into it. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel, he says, was a child, I loved him. Now I want you to feel the emotion of what's happening there in that line and what's going on in this passage. We're coming off of, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, we're coming off of a lot of hard stuff. We've been having some difficult texts that we've had to preach over the last couple of weeks. Indictments, judgment that's coming because they're turning from God, they're rebellious. Because they love prosperity more than they love God. Because they enjoy having other gods in addition to the one true God. Chapter 10 closes with some very strong words. You have plowed iniquity, he says. Wickedness. You've reaped injustice. You've trusted in your own way. Verse 14. The tumult of war shall rise among your people. Your fortresses are going to be destroyed. Your helmet is about to be smashed in the rocks. Mothers were dashed to pieces. Referring to another time that judgment came. This is going to be your fate, he's saying, and their children as well. This will be done to you, O Beth- Bethel, because of your great evil at the dawn. The king of Israel will be cut off. And then now with all of that, just reading through, remember, there weren't initially chapter divisions in the original text, so we're going to read right through you're going to be destroyed. Your, your king is going to be cut off. And when you were a child, I loved you. This is like a, a father that I picture in my mind. An older father, maybe, who has had a rebellious son. The son, let's say, left home at the age of 16. And, and took a lot of his father's stuff and stole money and squandered it. And then worked odd jobs and then got into a drug addiction and into an alcohol addiction. And then found himself going from one woman to another and having kids and then leaving behind those kids and chasing after his addiction. And then he finds himself in the alley with nothing. And then he walks home or maybe he crawls home and he comes before his father and he says, I need some cash. I need money. I need help. And the father says, fine, I'll help you. And he helps him. And the, his, his adult child now takes that money and he squanders it again. And he comes back and he says, I need more money. And the father says, I will not help you anymore. And he turns him and he sh- closes the door. And he watches his son now go, just, just walk through life with nothing destroying his life and the father is is angry and he's frustrated and he says when he was a son I loved him he's my son that is the emotion that we, we, ha, we have here. It's as if God is sort of like allowing us into his thought process and not even just his thought process but his emotional process. Israel, look, this is your fate. Israel, you are going to be destroyed. Israel, there are r- difficult times ahead and as I consider you, I remember you and I remember how much I loved you. Listen, what this picture does for us is that it changes the analogy now from father or from husband and wife now to father and, and son or parent and child. What it does for us is this it shows us not only the fact that God has love for us, but it shows us the kind of love that he has for us. And that is a fatherly kind of love. Now for those of you who have a dad, or for those of you who are a dad, or a mom, what you know is this, the more parental your love is for someone, the more their rebellion hurts. The more parental your love, the more their rebellion hurts. Think of this in your own life, friends of yours who have drifted, who have rebelled, the pain that that has brought to you as a friend. Can you imagine if they were your son or your daughter? The more fatherly a love, the more rebellion stinks and stings and just is, is miserable and hurts. So, first aspect of this sort of childly looking at parental kind of love is that it says that God has a fatherly love and it's a love in which rebellion actually hurts Him. The second aspect of this is a covenantal love. Now let me show you what I mean by that. Then Look at the next line. When Israel was a child, I loved him, he says, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, whenever we see a reference to out of Egypt... This is that moment where God took the children of Israel out of slavery through the wilderness. Do do we remember this story? Whenever we see a reference to Egypt, that speaks like like all kinds of gospel-centered and Christ-centered sirens need to be going off in our minds. This is a picture here of the gospel. It's a reminder of the gospel, and specifically it's a reminder of The covenantal kind of love that God had for Israel. Let me explain. Is God made a covenant with a man named Abram? Remember Abram? And it was a covenant with Abram and all of his people, Israel, to come. And it was a covenant that was unconditional, meaning there's nothing that you can do to change my love for you. There's nothing that you could, like, this is, what's, this is how I feel about you. This is my commitment to you, and it will never change. Do you understand that, Abram? Coming out of Egypt was the sign of this, this covenant. It was, it was this, this moment in which we see the reality that God's covenant will not end for Ab- with Abram, but that it's an unchanging and ongoing covenant. What we're seeing here is this. He's referencing back to the time when Israel was a child, Calling them out of Egypt. It's a reminder that I have made a covenant with you that will not change. But look at verse 2. He says, the more that they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning offerings to idols. Now look at verse 3 and 4. It's the eye centeredness of God here. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to feed them. Here, what 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 we're seeing here is that God is reminding them, look, I made a covenant with you, and it's the kind of covenant in which I do everything. So here you are, squandering my love. Here you are, the more you grow, the more altars you build, the more you drift away from me. You're forgetting the fact that I have done everything for you. I taught you how to walk i held you by your hands and your feet were on my feet and i taught you these things it was i who healed you so as to say it's, it's i who put you together and gave you the prosperity that you actually have it was i who led you through life with cords of kindness and bands of love it was i who took the jo- the, the, the 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 yoke off of your jaws this picture of an animal in slavery and he's saying look i freed you by the way Little side note here, the asterisk, side note, down at the bottom of the page. Um, popular today to see Jesus as sort of like a, uh, um, the life of Jesus as a boring kind of life. Like, no fun. Jesus enslaves us. I don't want to be a Christian, be bound by all that. Look, Jesus doesn't enslave us, Jesus frees us. He frees us from slavery. It was I, he says, who freed you from slavery and took off the yoke on your jaws. I stooped down to feed you. Only God can be I-centered. Because God made a covenant, an unconditional covenant with His people. And it's a covenant that no matter how far they turn, He will remain. I, He says, am doing these things. This is the covenantal love of God, which means this. No matter what happens, Israel, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. Not death or life or angels or demons or the present or future or height or depth. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. So the first hope we have, for those of you who are drifting down the river, Drifting through life, a drifting soul, your first hope is this. God has a fatherly, and remember covenantal, He has a fatherly love for you. Now, here is your first sort of attack. This is the first piece of the rock to cling on to. This is your first move in fighting the drift. Hate your rebellion hate your sin if we are going to take the fatherly aspect of god's love for us we must guys we must hate sin let me give you an example a group of guys sitting in a circle accountability group talking about what most men's accountability groups talk about and that is fellas porn it's what we talk about? And we're say a group of guys sitting around in a circle. Did you look at porn this week? Yep. You? Yep. 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 You? Yep. All right. Well, let's pray for each other. Next week, same thing. Yep. Yep. All right. Let's pray for each other. Next week. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right, well, let's pray. For, maybe this time we'll put our hands on each other and we'll pray, that, pray it like this, all right? I'll use that, that as an example. <clears throat> but guys, do we see sin as a mere blemish? Something that just stinks? Something that we just don't like? Maybe, uh, <clears throat> maybe we see sin as something that, that annoys us, something we wish we could just shake off. I speak with a lot of Christians who are really, really, really annoyed. I mean, they are annoyed by their sin. It is annoying to them. It's like a "Ah," kind of annoyance. (laughs) Like fingers on the chalkboard annoyance. And they wish that it would just go away, but guys, they don't hate their sin. They're annoyed by it, but they don't hate it. And there's a difference. They don't despise it. They don't see it as ugly slavery. They don't see it as chains that, have, that, are, that are on their wrists and on their ankles dragging them to hell. They don't hate their sin. Friends, if we take the fatherly love of God seriously, if we are somebody who says, yes, I, I, I like the idea that God loves me as a father, then we also have to take our sin seriously and we must hate it because it hurts the father. It's utter rebellion against the father. So that's our first hope, the fatherly love, and that's our first fight. The second hope is this, the second hope for a drifting soul. It is God's merciful love for you. So he has a fatherly love. He also has a merciful love. Let me show it to you in the text. Verse 5. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. They are bent on it. This shows you the the nature of their rebellion. These are people who are bent on sinning. Like their natural state is a bent rebellion away from God. Now you might say, how is this a merciful love? That sounds like judgment to me. Let me show you how this is a merciful love. Look at verse look at verse eight. "How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now what is Adma and Zeboim? Adma and Zeboim were the suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if there are any suburbs that you don't want to live in, it would have been Adma and Zeboim. These suburbs that got wrapped up into the same sins that Sodom and Gomorrah were wrapped up in. You can read about it. And as God's wrath for Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins came down on Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim were wrapped up in that and they were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. Now let me show you something in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. This is like a picture, it's like almost a prophetic picture of the kind of judgment that is coming to Israel because of their sins. This is what he says in Deuteronomy 29. 29. The foreigner who comes from afar to Israel and looks at Israel When he sees the afflictions of the land and the sickness with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned with brimstone and salt, nothing sown, nothing growing, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger. Right there in Deuteronomy 29, what he's saying is is that you deserve the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. For your drifting, for your wandering away, for your sin, for your lack of hatred for sin. You deserve to be destroyed in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in Deuteronomy 29. He's pointing toward that. What God is saying here in Hosea chapter 11 is He's saying, I will not execute my burning anger. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? Verse 8. How can I hand you over? How can I make you like Admah? How can I make you like Zeboim? What he's saying is this. I remember you as a child. I loved you. I remember my covenant that I made with you. He's saying you deserve the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. You deserve to have fire just poured down upon you and absolutely just destroy you. But my heart breaks too much. How can I do this to you? Guys, do you see here the emotions that God has for Israel? We often like step back and we think of God as like this sort of cold and icy, uh, unemotional kind of character. And we think we are the ones with emotions. We are the ones who have feelings. We are the ones that get angry. We are the ones that have warmth and love and passion. Yet we forget that we are made in God's image. Why is it that we have feelings? Why do we have emotions? Why do we have warmth? It's because we are made in His image. What we're seeing here is not God condescending and, and, and talking in human terms. He's talking in God terms. And God is a God of emotions. He's a God of passion. He's a God who has anger, and he's frustrated with sin and he's grieved over sin and it's all because of his compassionate love so here god is saying this is what you deserve yet how can i go through with something like that i it, it destroys me to see you hurt to see this kind of destruction come down upon you. The point of this text is to show us that God loves passionately. He is a passionate lover. Now, a question that could come up here is, does this mean that God is like bipolar? Like He changes? Goes back and forth like... I'm angry at you. This, you're going to Assyria. Assyria's going to be your king, but I can't. Ah, shoot. No, I love you. Never mind that. I love you, all right? Remember, like, you, you know, you, you made that face that you make, and it reminded me of when you were a boy. And I love you. And so I'm not going to do these things, but yes, I will. You're going to Assyria, Israel. Is that God? Is he like this crazy. Emotionally unstable deity? The the third aspect, or the third hope that the drifting soul has is this. Is that God doesn't change. The third hope that the drifting soul has is The unchanging love of God. Now let me explain this to you and how this works out. Look at verse 9. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. Now that word wrath is a word for utter destruction. It's the kind of destruction that Sodom and Gomorrah experienced. I will not come in utter destruction. I will not come in wrath. Now what do we see here? He says, I am God and not a man. What does that mean? First, it means this. Man's love changes. So a husband will love his wife And to some degree, I think it's always conditional in the sense that a wife who is over and over and over again for two, three, four years going off, cheating, adulterous relationships, squandering his love, not recognizing his care, eventually he says, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm coming in destruction. I'm destroying this marriage. The covenant is over. Or think of it in terms of a father and a son. How often do dads love their children? Indeed. But as they get older, the fathers find their own identity in their son. A mother finds her identity in her daughter. And then as that son fails... Proves to be a failure over and over and over. And the father can no longer vicariously live through the successes of his child. His love begins to wane. I'm frustrated with him. I'm angry. Sometimes I, 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 as a dad I look uh, at, at older fathers who have adult sons who have disowned their children and I can't understand it. The only, thing I can make sen- the only way I can make sense of it is that they are man and not God. That we have fickle loves. We have changing loves. We have conditional loves. What God is saying, I am God and not man. Meaning I don't change. So here's what he's doing. He's connecting this with verse one. I remember you as a child. I remember the covenant I made to you. And by the way, I haven't changed. I still love you in the same way and I will continue to love you in that way for all time. So then what is happening here? Because we see in verse 5, he says Assyria shall be their king. Like they, they are. There is a judgment coming. They are about to be. Like literally, historically, some years later, Assyria came in and, they, and led them out of the land. So what is that? Here's what it is. It is not God's wrath. It is God's discipline. So in the same way in 1 Corinthians five, we see uh, something that would be maybe more uh, easier to relate to us today with individuals. In 1 Corinthians chapter five, we see a husband or a, a man who is having relations with his father's wife. We've talked about this quite a bit here in this church. And the church is instructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, next time you come together as a church, bring that man before the body. Or if he's not present, bring the situation before the body and remove him from your midst. I'll give you the actual wording. The actual wording is this, you are to deliver this man to Satan. Everybody go, Whoo! sounds harsh. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, uh, 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 church discipline at first always feels harsh. What God is describing in 1 Corinthians 5 through Paul for the early church feels initially harsh. You are to deliver him over to Satan. That sounds unloving, If we were to enact church discipline in our church to that degree here, we have in the past, and if we do it in the future, the immediate response is that's judgmental. Where is the love? Aren't, isn't the church supposed to be loving? Now you're putting me outside? Let me show you how it's love. Love. It is not judgmental. It is love. It is compassionate love. It is unchanging love. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, he says you're to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What he's saying is this. Look, he's, he's acting like he's Satan's darling. He's going around participating in wicked activities. Give him what he wants. Turn him over to his desires. Turn him over to his actions. Turn him over to Satan, so to speak. So that he may see the emptiness there. So that his flesh may be be destroyed. And so that his soul may be saved on that day of judgment. Friends, this is love. Not for the flesh, but for the spirit. This is what's happening here. On a broad scale with Israel in Hosea. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says they. Verse 10. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes. Declares Lord. There is going to be a judgment. There is going to be a discipline. But friends, this is not wrath. This is love. And the goal here, do you see God's goal for Israel? The goal is that they may return to the land. That they may walk with God. That they may live in light of eternity. That they may live with God as their only God. That they may Cherish him that they may return the love to God. His desire for Israel is that their flesh will be destroyed so that their spirit may be saved on that day of destruction. This is the unchanging love of God. A man's, love will destroy, a man's anger will destroy. A man who catches his wife in adultery will destroy. It's very likely that they, there could be a gun. A father whose son is utterly rebellious, has made a mockery of the family name, will disown. But I am God. God not a man, he says, and my love is unchanging, and I have a goal behind my discipline. It is that you will cherish me. And this isn't an if, this is a will. They will return, he says. Friends, what can separate you from the love of God? I wonder how you would actually answer that like if we were to be really honest. like Let's just say we didn't know the book of Romans and we were going to try to be honest and, and talk about how we feel about that question. What might separate you from the love of God? Sin. Thank you. Sin. Temptations to sin. The enemy. Demons. I mean, some of you are facing some temptations today and you're thinking, like, man, if I have to go through life and this temptation doesn't ever get worked out, I may not make it. Like, I don't know. I mean, this very well may separate me from the love of, love of God. Some of us may feel that life itself could separate us. I mean, I have a drifting soul. I don't know if I'll make it till next Sunday. may not be back at church next Sunday, the rate I'm going right now much less a year from now, much less five years from now. What if I live 30 or 40 years? Life itself may separate me from the love of God. Or death, we fear death. Right now we're experiencing the common grace of God through the church and through creation. We're experiencing His love. But what about when I die? What then? Maybe death could separate me from the love of God. What might separate you from the love of God? Here is the goal of this passage in Hebrews chapter 11, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus Nothing will separate you. Why? Because a covenant has been made. When we hear the fatherly love, the fatherly aspect of His love, what we hear and what we see is as a fulfillment to that is that the Father sent the Son into this world to live a righteous life on our behalf so that we may stand before God covered in His blood wearing the clothes of our older brother Jesus. And be counted as righteous, that he may go to the cross and he may die for our sins. The Father sent the Son, fatherly love, as we hear of the merciful love. We see the mercy of God in Christ forgiving us our sins. As the wrath our Sodom and Gomorrah was placed onto Jesus instead of onto our heads. And then we have mercy flowing from that, forgiveness flowing from that. And we see the unchanging love of God as we hear Jesus say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What does that mean practically for us? What it means is this. As we go back and we recount how God said, I did this for you, I did that for you, I did this for you. On one hand, physically, there are things that happen in our life that God does that we then never uh, attribute to God. We say it was just chance or things just happened or I just so happened to be sitting here in church or in Baltimore or whatever. We don't see God's hand, His sovereignty through, through all of life. But even more, where we fail to realize His, uh, His grace to us is this. How long have you been saved? How have you been saved for this many, these many years, these many months, these many days? What has kept you? Is it, is it because you have such a great faith? Is it because you've never uh, come across odds that should have destroyed your faith? Is it because that you, uh, your faith has never wavered? It's always strong? Is it because you've always had perfect church attendance and you got five stars in Sunday school? No. What we see is this. I have done these things for you. The reason we are here today is because of God's unchanging covenantal love for us. It's because of the kind of love that says, I will never lose you. Do you understand that? So, 30, 40 years, I won't lose you. Odds come your way, I won't lose you. Temptations, I will give you the grace to fight it, to move beyond these sins. I won't allow these sins to take you to hell. I will not lose you. Friends, you have found a rock this morning that isn't going downstream. You have found your superhero swimming across the river to save your life. God has given us all that we need in Christ. Our danger is to rest in ourselves. Our danger is to trust in ourselves and not trust In His love. Our danger is to trust in our own works and not trust in the works of Jesus. Our danger is to trust in our own lives and not in the life of Jesus. Our danger is to trust in our own sacrifices and not in the sacrifices of Jesus. This morning, guys, we need to rest in Christ. You have found your hope. What what love it is of God. That He is showing you right now that He would bring you and sit you in this room so that you may hear what you deserve. That you may hear the threat of Sodom and Gomorrah. That you may hear the threat of hell, the reality of separation from God. Oh, what love it is that God would bring you here so that you may hear His mercy, His kindness, What love it is that He might bring you here to draw you to the cross, to the face of Jesus, so that you may accept, receive His salvation. That you may receive the blood of Christ. That you may receive Christ as your Lord. What love it is that He will not allow you to go on in your sin. Friends, your response this morning return the love. As the goal for Israel, God's goal for Israel, was that they may be disciplined so that they may cherish Him, so that they may put away the other gods, so that they may put away the, the, the sins that have entangled them, so that they may cherish God Himself. God's goal for you this morning is that you would cherish Him, that you would cling to Him, that you would love Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may we see Jesus. We thank you for the, the the wonder of your love, the reality that you have a fatherly love for us. You have a love for us that is covenantal, that is based on a covenant that you made of grace, something that you are doing for us, the way that you are loving us in spite of ourselves. God, we thank you for your merciful love and that you... Uh, give us what we need. You give us the grace to remain faithful. You give us the grace and the ability to abide in Christ, not just for today, but for the rest of our lives. We thank you for the promise of Jesus that you will never leave us, and that you will never forsake us. We thank you for your unchanging love, and God, we pray that this morning every soul in this room that is drifting may rest in the rock, and that we may not just appreciate the rock, but that we will love the rock, that we will cherish the rock, the hope of our salvation, Jesus Christ, and it's for his sake that we pray. Amen.